service. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know about Jimmy Page, founder of Led Zeppelin, guitar icon, classic rock hero. You know about Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll, one of the most significant cultural figures of the 20th century. But this isn't about them. This is about Jackie DeShannon, singer, songwriter, and producer. She had her own radio show at 13, recorded her first hit song at 21, and then wrote countless hits for other artists as part of the first female songwriting team in pop music. She was admired by the Beatles, wrote with Randy Newman and Van Morrison, and paved the way for the birds and folk rock. She was mismanaged by her record label, but so great is her talent that she broke through anyway with a pair of indelible singles and a masterpiece album. I'm Nikki Lynette, and this story is about a girl. The plane was somewhere over West Virginia, or maybe Tennessee, on its way to New Orleans. Jackie DeShannon reclined in her seat in the darkness of the first-class cabin of a chartered Lockheed 188 Electra. She started to drift into sleep, but then became disoriented in that brief twilight moment. Was she really on a plane, or was this a dream? She glanced around and saw the man sleeping a few seats over. It was Clarence Frogman Henry, a great R&B pianist and singer, famous for a couple of hit songs, including Ain't Got a Home, in which he croaked out some verses in the character of a lonely frog. Seeing Clarence grounded her, or the opposite of grounded in this case. She was on this plane, and then it came to her that in the cabin just behind her were the four most famous musicians in the country, probably the world, the Beatles. Jackie DeShannon was one of the warm-up acts for the Beatles' first proper North American tour, along with Clarence, the Bill Black Combo, the Exciters, and until recently, the Righteous Brothers. The self-Righteous Brothers, it turned out. The tour was six weeks of one-night stands, and Jackie had to admit it was a tough gig. The openers were an afterthought for the fans at best. At worst, a target of scorn. The kids wanted the Beatles and the Beatles only. But the Beatles only played a 30-minute set each show. They needed other acts to fill time, to make it a show. 
The Righteous Brothers' brand of melodramatic, blue-eyed soul was no match for a hostile crowd of shrieking girls, and they quit the tour after a few dates. Jackie didn't mind the chaos. She might only have turned 23 a few weeks earlier, as the tour was in Seattle, but she was already a pro. She'd been in the business since she was a little girl, and she was here to do a job. The Beatles put the asses in the seats and filled stadiums. Not her, not Frogman, and sure as hell not the Righteous Brothers. Jackie DeShannon kept her short set up-tempo, singing familiar numbers like the Isley Brothers' classic rave-up shout, and played the songs of hers that the audience might know. Her 1963 hit Needles and Pins, and one that she'd written, When You Walk in the Room. She couldn't believe it had been almost a year since that song was released, on November 23rd, 1963. Not exactly fortuitous, she thought. That was the day after President Kennedy was assassinated, and pop music had been about the furthest thing from anyone's mind. But it was a strong record, and it still managed to eke onto the Billboard Hot 100 chart. And just as Jackie was crisscrossing America with the Beatles, she did get lucky. When You Walk in the Room was covered by The Searchers, a popular British invasion group from Liverpool, home of the Beatles. Their version of her song hit number three in the UK, 35 in the US. The Searchers had also recorded Needles and Pins, following Jackie's version, taking it to number one. Both covers made Jackie a well-known commodity, a substantial artist, at least among music insiders. Thanks, boys, she thought. She'd have to send the searchers a telegram when the tour was done. This thought was interrupted by the sound of the curtain leading to the back of the plane sliding open behind her. She turned to see George Harrison emerging, an electric guitar under one arm. The opening acts were discouraged from visiting the rear cabin, but the Beatles often came up front to hang out with the other artists. Now their lead guitarist ambled over to where Jackie was sitting. George held out the guitar he carried and asked, do you think you could show me that guitar bit for walk in the room? Jackie had written the infectious riff herself and gladly showed him the fingering. She coached him as he played the arpeggiated figure repeatedly until he got it right. He asked her about the sound of the guitar on Jackie's recording, which was recorded with the 12 string electric guitar. A session guy called Glenn Campbell had played it on the record, and she told George that she got him to play it a little loose, not too pro. George said he recently got a 12-string himself and had just started using it. Jackie was kind of surprised by the Beatles, their musicianship and their work ethic. Suits and haircuts aside, the band was obviously no marketing gimmick. Besides the grueling tour schedule, they were relentlessly self-improving. George was always practicing, and John Lennon and Paul McCartney were constantly writing, coming up with better and better songs, trying to top themselves every time. John Lennon had come up to see Jackie too, a couple of weeks earlier, carrying his own guitar. He seemed unusually self-conscious as he asked if he might play something for her. There was a song he was working on for the next Beatles album, I'm a loser, he called it. He played what he had and asked her if she thought it was any good. Jackie did think it was any good. 
Really? She was overwhelmed and gratified by these signs of respect shown by the superstars, who were also featuring her as their prime support. Her set immediately before theirs. Nice to finally get some recognition as a performer, and not only a songwriter for others. The Beatles, of course, got this. Liberty Records? Not so much. Liberty was her record label and also owned her song publisher, Metric Music. She didn't feel any bitterness toward Liberty. After all, they kept her on as a performer even after a string of dud singles. But they were much more interested in her writing songs for their artists who already had hits. Jackie really wanted to sing. It was why she started writing in the first place, to have decent material to perform. This was back even before she was called Jackie DeShannon, when she was living with her family outside of Chicago, just striving for a regional hit. As the plane sped toward Louisiana in the early morning hours of September 16, 1964, Jackie DeShannon started to drift off again. Jackie was not one to get rattled, but she was having a bit of an identity crisis. She stood in the wings of a Chicago theater, waiting to take the stage at yet another record hop. In 1957, these kinds of dance shows for teens were real common. They usually featured groups and singers who'd had a song or two on the radio. She wasn't sure which was greater, the number of these hops she played or the number of stage names she'd adopted. Who is she today? Sherry Lee, Jackie D. She closed her eyes to conjure up the image of her recent single, I'll Be True, released that same year by Gone Records. Jackie D, that was it. That was the name printed on the label. By the time the MC announced her nom de jour, she was ready and strolled out onto the stage to sing I'll Be True, along with a couple of others she recorded, Baby Honey and How Wrong I Was. Jackie D was genuine rockabilly. She loved country and R&B and landed in that sweet spot just before rock and roll really became its own thing. One of the big rockabilly singers at the moment was Eddie Cochran, and he was on that same bill in Chicago. Eddie had become an international star when he'd appeared in the seminal rock and roll movie, The Girl Can't Help It, singing his own original song, 20 Flight Rock. That was what really made Jackie a fan. Like her hero, Buddy Holly, Eddie wrote songs and sang them. She'd just written her first. It was called Buddy, in fact, a tribute to the Texas singer. Okay, maybe it wasn't the greatest song in the world, but it was a damn sight better than anything else she had to choose from. Jackie came off stage and found herself immediately face-to-face with Eddie Cochran, looking like James Dean, but somehow cooler. In his Oklahoma twang, he raved to her about her performance. Her voice, her presence on stage, the songs, it was all something else. But, he said, if you really want to get somewhere, you got to come to California. She traveled to Nashville. She'd been in New York. If Eddie Cochran said she should go to California, she was going to go, even if it took a couple years. By the time she did hit the Golden State, Folks in the music business knew about Jackie. 
a pretty young blonde who wore tight gold pants and sang in a deep, soulful voice, and who could write songs? That got some attention. Before Jackie even got to Los Angeles, Eddie Cochran's label, Liberty Records, had released her song Buddy as a single. Once she was there, Liberty signed her as a singer and a writer, and as Jackie DeShannon. And then, nothing. Every single she put out went nowhere. Jackie met another songwriter, Sharon Shilley. Sharon was great, an inspiration. She'd actually been Eddie Cochran's girlfriend and was with him in England in April 1960, when the car they were in crashed, killing Eddie and seriously injuring both Sharon and singer Jane Vincent. But Jackie didn't know her until after all of that. Already an established songwriter with hits for Eddie, Richie Valens, and Ricky Nelson under her belt, the grieving Sharon came back to L.A., determined to stay away from the music business altogether. But when introduced to Jackie as a potential writing partner, she reluctantly dipped her toes back in the water for Jackie's next single, Baby When You Kiss Me. Still nothing. But Jackie and Sharon kept at it. The first female songwriting team of the era who soon struck gold with Dum Dum, a song recorded by Liberty artist Brenda Lee. It went to number four on the Billboard Hot 100. A string of hits for other artists followed. The Fleetwoods, Irma Thomas, The Ronettes. The two writers celebrated their success, riding around in a convertible in the California sun, hitting the Hollywood hotspots, living the dream. Right? Well, Jackie did feel good, but still, she couldn't find that hit for herself. She and Sharon would write all week, and then Jackie would record demos every Friday. She had full reign in the studio on these informal sessions, sometimes making a basic song sketch, other times pulling in some of the top players on the West Coast. Glenn Campbell, James Burton, Leon Russell, Hal Blaine, people who were part of what was unofficially known as the Wrecking Crew. The best of the best. Jackie's official sessions as an artist were a different story. Girls couldn't produce their own records. Get serious. They obviously needed someone in control, a seasoned producer. But Jackie just could not get her vision across to these gatekeepers. Then she met Jack Nietzsche, a writer, producer, and arranger who worked with Phil Spector and was part of the whole Wrecking Crew scene. They became friends. Nietzsche really understood her as an artist. They shared a love of a lot of different kinds of music. I really want to record something with an edge to it, she told him. They sat together at the piano and went over some ideas, settling on a simple riff. Jack and his co-writer, a pre-famed Sonny Bono, polished off the song called Needles and Pins. Jackie added a vocal hook to the refrain, turning pins into pins. No writing credit on this one, but what the hell. It was exactly the right song, and Jackie was charged up to record it. Liberty Records was not. But if they couldn't see the potential in Needles and Pins, well then, maybe they just didn't know a good song when they heard it. Actually, maybe they didn't need Jackie DeShannon at all. Maybe she'd take her songs elsewhere, 
Or maybe she'd just come down with an extended case of writer's block till her contract ran out. No matter what, she refused to go record if she couldn't do the song. Liberty caved, and Jackie recorded Needles and Pinned with Nietzsche recreating the Phil Spector wall of sound production style, using a bunch of the usual musicians. At one point, Beach Boys mastermind Brian Wilson skateboarded into the control room to hear what was going on. Needles and Pins was a modest hit in America, but went to number one in Canada, and it was enough to keep her going. Her original song, When You Walk in the Room, came next. Then she got a call from London. How would she like to go on tour with the Beatles? Sandra Myers suddenly realized her daughter was gone. Three-year-old Sharon was right next to her a moment ago. As they stood in a crowded audience listening to Tex Ritter and his band performing, Sharon was young for a country and western show, but she was also precocious and entranced by music. Just as Sandra started to panic, she looked up at the stage. Oh, Lord, she thought, with a mix of relief and exasperation. Little Sharon was up there right next to Tex Ritter. She just drifted toward the music and was now singing with the band. By the time she was six, she was regularly invited to sing on local radio shows in Kentucky. They put her up on top of a crate so she could reach the microphone. She sang where and whenever she could. When the family moved to Illinois, she was touring around, appearing on television, and hosting her own radio program called Breakfast Melodies on WMRO. She was Sherry Lee by then. Sherry Lee became Jackie D, then Jackie Shannon, then Jackie D. Shannon, and finally, Jackie DeShannon. It was a long time before she stopped thinking of herself as two simultaneous entities, Sharon Jackie. She loved country, loved to sing those beloved Patsy Cline and George Jones songs, but she was discouraged from singing blues or R&B songs on the radio. She didn't get it. Her mother sang blues. Jackie would listen to the Midnight Show on the radio when they played what they called race records. Howlin' Wolf, Jimmy Reed, The Clovers, Ruth Brown. This was foundational stuff. It seeped into Jackie's musical DNA. It was the kind of schooling shared by a lot of aspiring white musicians. None more famously or impactfully than Elvis Presley. Jackie was on her way out of a ballet class, and she was beat. Her folks were living with her in L.A., and they were expecting her home. The front door was open when she arrived, and she could hear laughing and an unexpected but somehow familiar voice through the screened-in porch. When she walked inside, the first thing she saw was a huge pink dog, about the size of a pony. And then... Elvis. Elvis Presley was in her kitchen, talking to her mother, who was laughing, unusually flustered, like a young girl. Elvis had brought the dog as a present. A few weeks before appearing in her kitchen, he called her up and asked her to come by his place in Hollywood, where he'd been living in the few years since his army service ended, recording some, but mostly making movies. He'd heard Jackie's records, her voice, and he recognized a kindred soul. 
Elvis was not super happy with the turn his career had taken, but he loved having jam sessions, and he had them all the time. With his own band, touring musicians, his backup singers, the Jordanaires, whoever was around. He was especially into gospel music. He wanted Jackie to come and sing. He told her, I'm going to send one of the guys down to pick you up. Well, I don't think that's going to work, she said reluctantly. My mother won't like that idea, sending someone to get me. After they hung up, she couldn't believe she'd just turned down Elvis. It slowly burned her until she was good and pissed off. Look, she confronted her mother, this is Elvis Presley. He will not be coming to the door with a corsage, so you can forget that, and you're making it impossible for me to go up and sing with the Jordanaires with Elvis and have this great experience. But now, standing in her kitchen, looking at this impossible tableau, she thought, I guess I was wrong. Instead of a corsage, though, he brought some kind of alien dog. They hung out a lot after that. Lots of jams at his house in the hills with all kinds of great musicians. She loved Elvis. She'd go see him perform in Las Vegas, and he always put her in a special VIP booth. During the show, he'd point her out to the crowd, tell her to stand up and take a bow. Jackie wouldn't date him, though. Did she want to date Elvis? Hell yeah, she wanted to date Elvis. But there was something she wanted more. She wanted to know him, to be his friend, a fellow musician. She wanted to want nothing from him but his respect, which she had and aimed to keep. To Liberty Records, Jackie's association with Elvis and the inevitable rumors of romance were another reason to keep her on their roster. Her public profile was outsized when compared to her chart success at that point. Jackie DeShannon was beautiful, talented, well-respected, and had a kind of mystique that kept people interested. She'd been romantically linked, however inaccurately, with Elvis, Ricky Nelson, and both John Lennon and George Harrison. She'd even starred in a movie. In 1964, a Hollywood friend got Jackie cast in a lightweight B-movie called Surf Party. She would later appear in another feature film, some TV shows, and as the singing voice of Marianne in an iconic episode of Gilligan's Island. Like Elvis, she enjoyed acting, but didn't exactly get offered great roles, and she found it hard to keep up with acting, writing, recording, and performing. Meanwhile, when it came to pop music, everything was coming up British. After the success of her songs by The Searchers and her notoriety from the Beatles tour, Jackie thought she'd go see what was going down in London. She booked time at her UK label EMI's Abbey Road Studios, where, of course, her pals The Beatles made their records. She hooked up with one of their engineers, Ken Scott, to record a track called Don't Turn Your Back On Me, a fast-paced number that owed as much to Buddy Holly as anything happening in swinging London, LA, or anywhere else. But she needed something for the session. Who's the best acoustic guitar player in town, she asked Ken Scott. After years of working with the Wrecking Crew, her standards were high. Well, there's this Jimmy lad. He's great, but he's in art school. I don't know if he's available. Jackie rolled her eyes. 
she came to London just to trade Glenn Campbell and James Burton for some part-timer college kid. But Ken Scott assured her this was the guy. They called around and managed to get Jimmy Page to the studio, his clothes covered in paint. Jimmy learned the chord changes and they started in, but he wasn't getting it quite right. It was too stiff. Ken Scott marveled as Jackie called for a break so she could teach Page the part. This was a first, a girl singer teaching guitar to a top session guy. Jackie showed him the right feel, and Jimmy played it back for her. Hell, it sounded ten times better than her. They nailed the song, along with a few others. Jackie left the studio thinking about the young guitarist, his obvious talent, his charm, his easy smile. Jimmy liked a lot of the same music she did. R&B, of course. And her friends, Elvis, Ricky Nelson, and Eddie Cochran, were among his heroes. And he seemed impressed by her, too. Not threatened, not superior or dismissive. She called him up a couple of days later. I've got a copy of Bob Dylan's new album, if you'd like to hear it. A question that needed no answer. Singer Marianne Faithful observed a very hot and heavy romance between the two. She knew Jimmy from the scene. He played on most of her records, but thought of him as kind of dull. Until, that is, he started seeing Jackie, the opposite of dull. Faithful was on tour, staying in the same hotel as Jackie, one room over. Paige and Jackie were sequestered inside, not even picking up the phone. Whatever was going on in there, well, it was audible. Faithful's manager, Tony Calder, finally went and pounded on Jackie's door. As soon as you two have finished shagging each other's brains out, he yelled, why don't you write Marianne a song as well? Jackie came up with one called Come and Stay With Me, a big hit for Marianne, reaching number four in England. Jackie and Jimmy started writing together too. They gave Marianne another one called In My Time of Sorrow, and then a few others were recorded by various artists. Jackie thought Jimmy should release his own record, and she encouraged him to do it. He had a song called She Just Satisfies, a kinks-sounding rocker that he'd been unable to whip into good enough shape. By the time Jackie was done helping him arrange it, Jimmy said to her, You really salvaged this thing. She also contributed to the B-side, Keep Moving, largely an instrumental with Jackie's voice prominently shouting the title refrain. Jimmy Page's single didn't go anywhere, but it raised his profile, nearly as much as dating Jackie DeShannon did. When he turned up at a gig by his future band, The Yardbirds, with Jackie on his arm, it surprised everyone. Well, he looks like a bit of a rock star, doesn't he? Noted one of the Yardbirds. Jackie brought Jimmy on his first ever trip to the States. They stopped first in New York. One of their co-writes had been recorded by Barbara Lewis for Atlantic Records. Jimmy met Atlantic founder Ahmed Ertegun, beginning a relationship that would have a profound impact on both men when Paige went to form Led Zeppelin. Then it was on to LA. For Jimmy, a revelation of sun and warmth, social liberation, and overall good vibrations. Jackie introduced Jimmy around as London's best guitarist. They went to see Jackie's friends, the Birds, who'd only just released their first single, 
a cover of Bob Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man. Jackie was ahead of her time, predicting folk rock with some of her first Liberty recordings. She was an early proponent of Dylan, having seen his first real gig on a visit to New York before anyone on the West Coast heard him. Liberty had canned her desire to release a whole album of Dylan songs. Before Jackie's When You Walk in the Room, the 12-string guitar was unusual in pop music, but it was about to become part of the defining sound of mid-60s rock, thanks to Jackie and the Searchers, the Hollies, and of course George Harrison, who would compose riffs strikingly similar to Jackie's on the Beatles' tracks Ticket to Ride and If I Needed Someone, both in 1965. The Birds were about to make the 12-string a trademark of their records. Jackie had already seen the band a bunch of times and thought they were great, perfect for some stuff she was working on. She brought them in to back her on a demo of her song, Splendor in the Grass, and she played them a song called Don't Doubt Yourself, Babe, which they decided to record for their first album. Through Jackie, Jimmy Page met, among others, The Birds, their producer, Terry Melcher, Kim Fowley, and slide guitarist Ry Cooter, who'd been in Jackie's band on the Beatles tour. But the Jackie-Jimmy relationship petered out by the end of 1965. She got the feeling he was down on the music business after his single flop. And she was utterly perplexed by his musing that they could go off and live somewhere remote and sell pottery. Of course, neither of them did any such thing. But he had to get back to England in any case. After he joined the Yardbirds, Paige wrote a song called Knowing That I'm Losing You. The band did not release it, but with a little reworking, it came out in 1970 as a Led Zeppelin track called Tangerine, widely considered to be a tribute to Jackie, an elegy for a beautiful and significant romance. Jackie DeShannon was too driven too great a creative force to just sit back and enjoy her well-earned place in popular music. Christ, she was still only 23. There were still very few people like her in music. Carol King was maybe close, but she'd been in a writing team with her husband, Jerry Goffin, and hadn't had any success as a recording artist. Conversely, Dusty Springfield, another singer with a deep, expressive voice, had a bunch of hits, but she was not a very prolific or successful writer. Jackie felt like there was a new wave of interesting female artists, like Joni Mitchell, who were coming up more empowered than women had been when she'd started, and Jackie was still going out to see all the new artists she could. Her writing and recording hadn't slowed down, but there were still no hits of her own. She met up with songwriters Burt Bacharach and Hal David to talk about working on a couple of singles. The duo had a long record of hits, notably with Dionne Warwick and Dusty Springfield. They ran through several ideas for Jackie, and then Hal said to Bert, why don't you play her what the world needs now? Bacharach shook his head. He didn't want to. Jackie didn't know if he didn't think she was right for the song, or if he just thought the song wasn't worthwhile. A couple of singers had already passed on it, but Hal David kept pushing them. It's fine, let's move on, Jackie thought. But Hal wouldn't let up. After 20 minutes, Bert relented and played and sang the song for her. 
Jackie was floored. This had been worth the wait. Bert Bacharach still wasn't sure, but Jackie was determined to have it. She learned it fast and sang it back to the writers. Bert exclaimed, We're off to New York! That's where they recorded it. What the World Needs Now is Love became a top 10 hit, Jackie's first. More than that, it was a timeless hit and would prove to have a life beyond the pop charts, a cultural touchstone for decades to come. Jackie followed a similar sound in 1967, recording an album entitled For You, full of lushly orchestrated songs, many of them old standards. She was again running parallel with Dusty Springfield, who made a like-minded album, Where Am I Going, the same year. But while Dusty went to Memphis in 69 to make her masterpiece, Jackie would go to Laurel Canyon to make hers. Actually, Jackie was already living in the hip artist enclave in the Hollywood Hills, soon to become shorthand for the kind of earthy, folk-informed rock made by the musicians who lived there. It was an inspiring place to be, to say the least. Big names regularly dropped by each other's homes to jam or play new songs for each other or just hang out. Jackie also loved the landscape, which reminded her of the organic surroundings of her Kentucky childhood. She called the new album Laurel Canyon, and it featured performers as varied as Dr. John, Russ Titleman, and a then-unknown Barry White. It was the first cohesive, near-concept record Jackie made. It's loose and gritty, with original songs as well as covers of Sunshine of Your Love, You've Really Got a Hold on Me, and the band's classic, The Wait. Then, a year later, came the culmination of Jackie DeShannon, the singer, the songwriter, and the producer. With her brother Randy Myers and Jimmy Holiday, she wrote a song based on a phrase her mother liked to use, put a little love in your heart. When it was released as a single, it hit number four on the Billboard Hot 100 and sold a million copies. Jackie said, it's the song that's the closest to my being and how I really see things. The song's universal message was not only of its time, but like what the world needs now is love, transcended time, becoming part of the cultural fabric. So Jackie DeShannon ended the 1960s on an incredibly high note. As the next decade dawned, she should have been poised to ride atop the singer-songwriter movement alongside Carol King. Like Jackie, King was another powerhouse songwriter who spent most of her career providing material for bigger names until she broke huge with Tapestry, a number one record in 1971. Jackie was able to finally escape the confines of Liberty Records and its division Imperial, to which she'd been shifted. The label had mismanaged and disrespected her as an artist, giving away her material to other singers, issuing demos as album tracks, putting together releases, naming the albums, and creating cover art, all without even consulting her. And if she asked too many questions for their liking, they called her a pushy broad. It was a damn miracle she'd had any hits at all. Success came despite the labels bungling. But her next labels, First Capital Records, then Atlantic, were unable to effectively market her 
though she turned out several acclaimed LPs. Capital was too timid, shelving a lot of the stuff she recorded for them, telling her it was uncommercial, as though they had any idea in a time when blockbuster albums ranged from Joni Mitchell to Led Zeppelin. Her Capital album, Songs, was rootsy and raw, but again, not marketed well. Disappointing, but on the bright side, the keyboard player on the record was a guy named Randy Edelman, also a songwriter, and Jackie married him in 1976. Atlantic Records smartly teamed up Jackie with Jerry Wexler and Tom Dowd, who had produced Dusty Springfield's Dusty in Memphis. The resulting album, entitled Jackie, was another critical success, but it just didn't connect. She wrote with Van Morrison and sang back up on his album, and he, in turn, produced a number of tracks for her. But after a single failed to make a splash, Atlantic inexplicably shelved all of the material. It wouldn't be heard until 2015. She landed at Columbia Records for an album called New Arrangement, but she was mismatched with producer Michael Stewart, fresh off his work on Billy Joel's Piano Man. Predictably, New Arrangement was too slick, lacquered with studio gloss. Jackie recorded some great demos for it, but felt like she once again had to defer to the producer. She was especially unhappy with the way he altered the whole feel of Betty Davis' eyes, a song she co-wrote with Donna Wise. Jackie was tired. Twenty years of swimming upstream, and for all her success, she still had to put up with this kind of bullshit. The idea of stepping back from it all was, for the first time in her life, kind of appealing. She got married and had a son. She kept writing, but recorded a lot more sporadically. In 1981, a friend slipped a copy of Jackie's original demo of Betty Davis' Eyes to singer Kim Carnes, who loved the more rocking vibe of the demo and recorded it for her new album. When the song was released as the lead single, it became a monster hit, a number one for nine weeks in the U.S. and number one on the charts in 21 countries. Carnes, Wise, and Jackie received Grammys for Song of the Year, and Carnes was awarded Record of the Year. And then there were the ongoing waves of revivals of what the world needs now is love and put a little love in your heart. The latter hitting the top 10 again when recorded as a duet by Al Green and Annie Lennox. The songs were featured prominently in movies like Forrest Gump and Scrooged. And in 2010, Jackie was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. She would eventually return to recording, but for a while, she could let her incredible body of work speak for itself. Upon the 2023 release of a collection of her early radio broadcasts, The Sherry Lee Show, Jackie was asked what she thought when she heard that young girl again. I love her, she said. I hear an innocence, but I also hear someone who has a powerful dream and a lot of drive. And that's what this story is about. Jackie DeShannon, a trailblazer, a musical force through multiple eras, a driven little girl who grew into a towering artist. This is about a girl. 
About a Girl is produced by Scott Janovitz and executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler for Double Elbows. The show was created by Eleanor Wells and hosted by me, Nikki Lynette. This episode was written by Scott Janovitz. For sources used in this episode, go to aboutagirlpod.com. Music by Scott Janovitz and Matt Tahaney, with additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker. The show is on Instagram at aboutagirlpod, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Nikki Lynette.